0: Our impetus for, for revisiting the guidelines this time around uh, was in part the president's executive order on competition.
1: Maggie, I mean, one of the reasons your job is so consequential today is that the country sort of forgot about antitrust for a very long time, didn't we? You used the term forgotten. It wasn't forgotten these past 40 years. It's
2: been ignored.
1: Yeah, that's willfully right.
2: Willfully ignored.
1: That's right.
2: Twice a month, Nick, you deposit some of your dirty Amazon money into my bank account. And so in a way, both of us, you and I, you a lot more than me, but both of us have benefited from this uh, uh, grotesque monopoly that Jeff Bezos has built. So this episode, we're doing a little penance.
1: Yeah, a little little bit. No, today, well, A, uh, I sold my Amazon... stock sadly <laughs> sadly before it became the grotesque monopoly that it is um, oh, so you could have been like a no a no no be,
2: like how many times yeah, over exactly exactly
1: <laughs> if only I had kept it all
2: oh i feel now i feel kind of sorry for you yeah, like exactly. you need to borrow some money
1: <laughs> but but which which brings us to the uh, subject of the day and and you know one of the my favorite parts about the middle out economic program the Biden administration is litigating is the third pillar, which is promoting competition. Right. And, you know, markets turn out not to be naturally competitive. Uh, Markets, if left on their own, inevitably concentrate into a sort of a winner-take-all circumstance.
2: Well, that's that. That is also what you are taught to do in business. Exactly. Sports. Exactly. You want to destroy the competition. That's right. Move fast, break things. as uh, and all Zuckerberg it, look. Said. All of that
1: is fine. Right. We want we want people to vigorously compete to try to get larger. But in the absence of significant countermeasures, policy measures, every market will concentrate into a monopoly over time, and why should we care? And the answer is quite simple because, you know, the thing about markets is they actually aren't efficient at all. That's a 19th century view of what they do. Markets are a great social technology because if well-structured, they are the most effective social technology we've ever found to evolve new solutions to human problems in right. um, in effective ways. And the thing about that evolutionary construct is that it only works if it's actually competitive right if there are actually mm-hmm. a bunch of discrete participants trying to solve these problems in new and better ways uh, and the fewer the fewer participants there are, the less problem solving goes on and the more exploitation takes place. And that's why we, want markets to be truly competitive and by truly competitive that means we want lots and lots of robust competitors in every market and sort of the story of the neoliberal economy over the last 50 years is that we forgot that about markets and as a consequence all of our industries concentrated into these basically monopolies or oligopolies And three bad things happen when you do that. The first is that prices to consumers go up as companies get more and more market power. The second bad thing is that wages for workers goes down, again, for basically the same reason, because workers have no alternatives to their current employers. And the third bad thing that happens is that we reduce significantly the amount of consumer choice and innovation, therefore, that exists in the economy and slow the rate at which we evolve new and better things.
2: And I will add a fourth thing to that, Nick, and that is that we concentrate political power in the hands of a few plutocrats, and then they proceed to undermine our democracy uh, to pursue increasing and concentrating their own wealth and power, and that is the natural state of affairs in human societies always and everywhere. And so the, the whole purpose of a of an inclusive democracy is to countervail these powers and keep them from doing that, which is what markets do naturally.
1: That's right. Exactly.
2: Markets are good. Markets are great at at innovation, at creating new solutions to human problems, but they're not perfect because they lead to... uh, a winner take all in which there's a handful of super rich and everybody else is crushed.
1: Exactly. And so it turns out that you and I are not the first people to make this observation. This has <laughs> this been well understood for a very long time. And it was certainly well known in our country. Uh, I mean, geez, for at least a hundred years, maybe longer. And and that understanding expressed itself in our anti-monopoly Laws that you know there was a bunch of antitrust and anti-monopoly laws that have been on the books in the country for a hundred years or maybe more.
2: Well, more. The Sherman Antitrust Act was
1: uh, passed in
2: 1890, and then the Clayton Antitrust Act, which is where where the bulk of the current law still comes from, was passed in
1: 1914. Wow, unbelievable.
2: You know, yeah. So this is you know a, a. deep and ingrained part of our legal and economic culture that for some reason, you say, you used the term forgotten. It wasn't forgotten uh, these past 40 years. It's been ignored.
1: Yeah, Willfully that's right. ignored. That's right. That's right. Until uh, Joe Biden came along and reminded us that if we want to have a high functioning society and high functioning markets, we need to get back to this. And so today- We get to talk to Maggie Goodlander, who's the Deputy Assistant Attorney General at the Department of Justice, to talk through the administration's new approach to merger guidelines, which are the very center of this problem and opportunity, and um, talk us through what they're doing, why they're doing it, and uh, why it matters.
0: I'm Maggie Goodlander. I'm a deputy assistant attorney general in the antitrust division at the US Department of Justice.
1: And uh, you you are doing some very, very interesting work with the newly proposed merger guidelines, uh, which is an incredibly big deal. So tell us what you're up to and why.
0: You know, the mission of the antitrust division is to enforce our federal antitrust laws. And those laws are designed to ensure economic opportunity and fairness by promoting free and fair competition. And one of the most important of our statutes, although they're all important, um, is section seven of the Clayton Act, which is a statute that dates back to uh, 1914. It's been amended a few times in the, in the intervening period. This is, a, this is our merger enforcement statute. It's the statute that the Department of Justice and that the Federal Trade Commission rely upon in, in enforcing our, our merger laws. So, you know, the these statutes have been on the books for over a century, and the Department of Justice has since nineteen sixty eight, together with the FTC, issued what are called merger guidelines. And in the antitrust world, these are sort of self evident features of of antitrust law. Um, in other parts of the law, guidelines are a little bit less common. So really the, the basic purpose of the guidelines is, is pretty simple. It is to, to give to the public and frankly to enforcers across the federal government, a real sense of, of how we approach our analysis when it comes to merger enforcement. And the way that the department has approached this work has changed over time and the guidelines have been updated. As I mentioned, they were first introduced in 1968 It was actually a a young attorney, a then young attorney in the antitrust division named Stephen Breyer, who helped to write the guidelines uh, in 1968. And they've been updated, you know, as appropriate in the intervening years. Our impetus for for revisiting the guidelines this time around uh, was in part the president's executive order on competition, which was issued in July of 2021.
1: Maggie, I mean, One of the reasons your job is so consequential is today is that the country sort of forgot about antitrust for a very
0: long time, didn't we? You know, I think that we've seen antitrust enforcement, as mentioned, ebb and flow over time. You know, the laws have always been on the books. And I think what's really exciting about the project that we've undertaken, I'd say three things about what's been exciting. The first is that what we've done here is to really revisit the law itself and there actually isn't as much law and merger enforcement as you might expect and part of the reason for that is as you point out the merger laws have not actually been enforced really there was there a sort of four decade period where we saw a real dip in the enforcement of the merger laws including section 7 of the Clayton Act so there isn't a whole lot of case law but we've gone back and really looked at the statutes themselves looked at the the supreme court cases and other circuit court cases interpreting these laws and what we've really tried to do is produce a document that is faithful to the law as it's been interpreted by the Supreme Court because at the end of the day really all of our all of our work all of our legitimacy as law enforcers turns on our faithful interpretation of the laws that Congress writes.
1: So these new guidelines are pretty unambiguous and you'll take us through them about trying to limit corporate concentration and increase competition. But were the guidelines that led to this sort of wave of neoliberal powered consolidation, did they have different guidelines? What What were the old guidelines?
0: Uh, in the beginning of 2021, when I arrived at the Department of Justice, when you look across the US economy, of U.S. industries had become more consolidated. At the same time, the antitrust division at the Justice Department had more than 200 fewer employees than we had in 1979. And I'm very happy to say that we have fewer, fewer employees today than years ago. But it's a really important statistic to keep in mind, because I think it really shows you sort of what, where the emphasis was and where where the priorities were with respect to the enforcement of the antitrust laws. And beginning with the president and including the, ter- the attorney general and our leadership here in the antitrust division, we're led by Jonathan Cantor, who's really been an extraordinary advocate for the cause. Uh, but we've seen antitrust enforcement really become a pillar of, of this administration's economic policy. And it's been part of, part of the way we've dealt with this lack of resources and our, our efforts to kind of build up is the problems we're encountering or the enormity of our task is really it's sometimes shocking, sometimes unsettling. But what, what we have now is a real commitment across the whole government to enforce the antitrust laws. And you know, one of the things that surprised me the most was coming to this work, seeing just the, the sheer number of federal departments and agencies that actually have authority in this area and it was—it's really—it's been an exciting process of dusting off portions of the U.S. code that have really never been used before, um, and I, you know I think this is this is quite new. Um, the evidence is, is in part that we've, we're seeing statutes, antitrust enforcement statutes that have never been used before, now really coming into the fold. And I can give you a couple examples if it's helpful.
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: We've undertaken in both our on the civil side and on the criminal side, I think we have more active investigations and cases than really at any point in our history as a division. One of the exciting developments has been largely through the executive order that the president issued in July of 2021, which includes in it 72 discrete and I think really helpful action items. It's opened up for us, Real Avenues, to work with other departments and agencies that have antitrust enforcement authorities that haven't been used before. So in our merger work, you know, two of the big cases, we've there have been nine civil merger suits that have been filed since the beginning of 2021. Two of them concern the airline industry. And the Department of Transportation, as it turns out, has some pretty extraordinary authorities uh, with respect to antitrust enforcement. And we found that both as a fellow law enforcer um, and also as, you know, the, the department plays more of a regulatory role at the Department of Transportation than, than we do at the Justice Department. Um, it's been really exciting to find ways in which their authorities complement ours and have really been central to, our, to some of our enforcement actions. Could
2: you clarify something for me? Uh, and we'll get into the details of it uh, a little later that you have these 13 guidelines, uh, which largely focus on market concentration and competition. But for the past 40 years, antitrust has basically focused on one guideline that I could tell and that is, does it increase or decrease cost to consumers, which is missing from year 13. Was that a written guideline or was that just sort of an informal policy that that, that the U.S. government has followed for four decades?
0: So here's what I'd say, you know, our, the way that we've approached writing up these guidelines has been really to begin with first principles and to begin with the statute that we enforce and the cases the cases that the Supreme Court and other circuit courts have issued interpreting those statutes that statute in particular cases. to your point about price increase I mean we this is this is one way to measure the potential at the end of the day what we're what we're really doing is we're we're looking at specific cases specific facts and we're applying a lot of those. To those to those facts that are before us but the question that we're beginning our analysis with is is really how competition presents itself in a particular market and how a, a, a merger might actually risk lessening competition substantially now or in the future and so increases in price are are one metric of that we certainly have pointed to in in our in our cases and it's there's nothing in the current guidelines that abandon that that basic approach. Um, but we've we've really tried to look carefully at how the law has been applied over time. And increases in price are for consumers are certainly one one harm that we see. But equally important, and one one important contribution I think that these guidelines, these draft guidelines are, are making, is really to, for the first time, explicitly mention and address the impact of anti-competitive mergers on, on labor markets. The antitrust laws have always applied equally to labor markets as they have to any other types of markets. The, the statute, when you look at the text, is very, very broad. And so what we're really trying to do is to be faithful to the law and to interpret it in the way that it is broadly written.
2: And how is this effort being received by the current generation of jurists largely who have been educated within the law and economics movement
0: you mean our the guidelines themselves or or do you mean in our
2: i i assume you're already arguing these in in court yeah uh, that you, you right so i'm i'm just wondering how the 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 judges i mean overwhelmingly have been d- influenced by the law and economics movement which has largely focused on basically consumer prices as the be all and end all of antitrust, which is not what the law says, obviously, but that's how it's been enforced.
1: Yeah. And it's also, I mean, just to be clear, just to be clear, it's an incredibly stupid standard. First, because there's no way to judge it. Um, (laughs) And there's no way to take it back after you approve the merger and they jack the prices up, right? Like corporate concentration always leads to higher prices. It can't not. So so I obviously the administration
2: and the the justice department and FTC are doing something different here than what what has been done in the past I'm just wondering you know the courts in the end have final say and whether you've made any progress in moving the courts on this
0: So one exciting example of one of our from one of our recent merger enforcement cases last year the division We successfully blocked Penguin Random House from acquiring its close competitor, Simon & Schuster. So this was a a lawsuit that prevented the largest book publisher in the world from exerting outsized influence over not the price of books, but actually at the core of our case, the theory of our case was the harm that would, would be inflicted on authors as a result of the merger. So... The issue there was over how much authors are paid for their work, it had nothing to do with prices for consumers. Ultimately, that's what the case turned on, and we brought the case to trial. Judge Pan, who's now a judge on the on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, was then a a judge on the on the D.C. District Court who presided over the trial. Issued, you know, what I think is a really powerful and important decision, and I think that case shows that you know, these theories are rooted in law and they're being recognized as such by courts.
1: So Maggie, there are 13 separate guidelines that are supposed to guide how we think about mergers in the future. Can you step us through uh, several of those or, you know, give us the high points of these guidelines? The the, the main themes.
0: Well, so I think just stepping back, the guidelines themselves are not law. They really are a, a synthesis and a presentation of how, as law enforcers, we approach the task of assessing whether a particular merger is unlawful under Section 7 of the Clayton Act. And so the unifying question that kind of begins the analysis is really a basic question, which is how does competition present itself in a particular case in a particular market? And the guidelines, you know, if you read through them, many of the concepts are are pretty intuitive ones that build on and aim to really uh, expand and in some cases clarify frameworks that have been set out in previous versions of the guidelines. So our aim really, is, is a, as I was saying, is one fidelity to the law and two, to really update these guidelines so that they reflect market realities. And that is itself, you know, by the way, part of what we know is true about merger law and antitrust law that it is it, it's our responsibility to look at the particular facts at the economics in a particular case and apply the law. So that what the guidelines really do is to try to distill usable principles of law from cases decided by the Supreme Court and by important circuit court decisions as well. So the guidelines range from you know kind of starting basic principles like mergers should not significantly increase competition, concentration in highly concentrated markets. So I think you know that the, there, there's intuitive appeal to to many of the guidelines and including guideline number one. The approach that we're taking has really built on, as I was saying, you know, a, a recognition that the antitrust laws apply with equal force in labor markets just as they do in product markets. And so guideline number 11 really addresses itself specifically to to that important principle, which we think is, is deeply rooted in antitrust law.
1: Okay, great. So in what ways does the new approach depart substantially from the older neoliberal approach? Is it Simply being more vigorous in how we um apply the statutes, or is it newer interpretations of the old statutes? I guess my sense is that we've had these statutes on the books for, for whatever it has been a hundred years, and, and basically during the neoliberal era, sort of since the nineteen eighties, we just sort of forgot about them. We, well, we just willfully ignored them. Yeah.
2: We knew they were there. Okay. Are are you asking, Nick, is this more about uh, clarifying our approach and guidelines or actually making the decision to enforce the law, which we haven't
1: really been doing for 40 years. Yeah. Is that a fair question, Maggie?
0: Yeah. You know, look, I think part of, part of what these guidelines are doing, I mean, it's, so just begin with the simple fact that this set of guidelines is really the, the first set of guidelines that has included citations to Supreme court cases. So just the, that simple point that I think that tells you a lot about how because these these guidelines have been manuals available to the public, of course, and that's you know part of what's been so exciting about this process. We've received thousands and thousands of comments um, from from workers, from farmers, from nurses on the front lines, from small business owners, from writers and, and other content creators. And, you know, I think the, the guidelines are written for a general audience, but really they're meant to be, this is meant to be a document for enforcers. And so we're, at the end of the day, law enforcement depends on kind of two critical inputs, the first being the law itself. And we've got statutes and cases that interpret that law in the first instance. And then, you know, we have the facts of a particular case and economics is incredibly important in the field of antitrust, but there is a difference between law and economics. And that itself, I think, is a, is a distinction that, much to my surprise, is not always recognized. And there is still a place for law in all of this. And I think that's one of the really important contributions of this effort.
1: Well, and particularly when when the economics you're referring to got it all wrong, right? Because at the core of the problem was this idea that corporate consolidation was a good thing, not a bad thing and that the bigger the big got. That it, that
2: it increased efficiency. Yeah,
1: that there would be a good economic outcome from all of this consolidation. It's quite obvious now, in retrospect, that that was just wrong, that that theory of economics was just factually incorrect. And if we had not ignored the law all those years, we would actually be more prosperous, not less. I think that's that's at the core of what's going on here is a recognition that we got the economics wrong and we shouldn't have ignored the law.
0: Yeah, I think that is a that is one way of seeing it and I think we're trying to do both things to correct for both basic errors in this in in this or or departures uh might be another way of putting it from the law itself and from you know the very best of economic theory and it's been so exciting to see our economists at work on this um we really have built a team here in the antitrust division it's it's a real privilege to work alongside these these men and women who are are at the top of their fields and and who are coming at this from really different perspectives and with different backgrounds we have labor economists we of course have IO economists but we also have technologists this has been a, a really important piece of what uh, Jonathan Cantor has done in leading the division we are building out experts across all relevant realms of expertise that we really need to rely upon. And and that includes technologists and economists who see these issues through all of the relevant and appropriate lenses. Uh,
2: these guidelines are meant to address proposed mergers, how to evaluate proposed mergers, and whether to proceed or not to try to block them. Uh, are they also being applied retroactively to Past mergers, for example, you know Facebook's acquisition of any number of former competitors and and other companies like that. Or will we see from the antitrust division efforts to break up some of the uh, highly consolidated uh, monopolist companies that we have right now?
0: One of the guidelines um, that I think is worth highlighting here is uh, guideline seven. And again, thank you for letting me number these guidelines because it, it makes me feel excited that <laughs> you and your listeners will will read the document. And I really do suggest doing that because it 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 was really meant for you as much as it is for, for all of us.
2: And we will provide a link in the show notes. So if people want to click through, you can read all thirteen guidelines for yourself.
0: Guideline seven says mergers should not entrench or extend a dominant position. So the really, you know, a chief concern here is is ensuring that mergers don't preserve monopoly power and that's that's really how we framed and I think this guideline seven in this respect is a really important piece to how to how we see the broader landscape of merger enforcement but we of course also have other tools um, under the antitrust laws including the Sherman Act and another exciting piece of the work that's been underway here at the division has has been our monopolization cases and we have, two major cases, one of which is, is scheduled to, the trial is scheduled to begin um, here in DC in mid-September. These tools are complementary, but distinct. So I, I just point that out.
2: But the same general principles apply to how you would approach a proposed merger as how you might approach evaluating whether an existing company might be subject to antitrust enforcement in an effort to have them divest of some of their businesses. Or am I reading that wrong?
0: Well, I think it's a little hard for me to answer the question. I think what I'd say is a key piece to the to to the merger guidelines and really like like I, I think a key framing to the document again is is that we look really in each case to how competition presents itself in a particular market under a particular facts of, of a given case. And And so we're going to be attuned to all of the relevant market realities. And that's, you know, I think a big piece of how just really a key first principle to to how we approach the work.
1: that's so interesting. Okay. So a couple of final questions. First, the benevolent dictator question. So if you were in charge and politics was not a concern, what would you do to fix all these problems?
0: How, how many problems are we talking about? Well, the full. <laughs> well, you, corporate, you, you pick up.
1: Yeah, corporate concentration <laughs> in America.
0: What I'd say is merger enforcement is one piece of our work. It's it's not the whole picture, but it it has. I think in in some ways you could say it's a it's a subtle but foundational impact on the structure of our economy. So where we set the bar, the you know part of the reason why these guidelines are so important is that our merger enforcement decisions determine over time how industries get structured and consolidated ultimately through through mergers. So this has I think a really big impact on our economy and 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 the middle class ultimately. The benevolent dictator question is a really interesting one because I you know I think in in part it's it's a hard question to answer because law enforcement itself is is you know we really have to take the facts as they come to us and you know, I think in our part of the beauty of our democracy is that we are limited by the laws that Congress writes and, you know, by what is true and what the facts are in a given case. So in some sense, I don't know that I could I could think as a responsible person in law enforcement through the lens of a benevolent dictator in, in a sense that you are totally incompatible.
2: Oh yeah. So Nick, what what she's telling us is that uh, um, contrary to what Trump might believe, dictatorship is actually illegal. Oh, damn it! In in this country. Okay. Right. Still. <laughs> Am I getting that right, <laughs> Maggie? Is a as a as an attorney, maybe dictatorship isn't such a great idea.
0: <laughs> well, in a sense, you know, dictatorship and monopoly power are really kind of both fruit from the same rotten tree. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is part of the reason why this work is so exciting, because it is ultimately motivated by ideas that animate our democracy itself, and the, you know the, the value of competition is is a a rule of law value, and I, I think it's a it's a value that keeps our country safer. It's a it's a value also that protects our civil rights, and I'm I'm reminded often in this work that. On bad days, I, I read one of my favorite decisions from Thurgood Marshall, who, who wrote when he was on the Supreme Court, um, an antitrust case in which he he said that the antitrust laws are as important to the preservation of economic freedom and our free enterprise system as the Bill of Rights is to the protection of our fundamental personal freedoms. And I, I think that's really true.
1: Yeah, I never thought of it that way, but uh, you're almost certainly correct. <laughs> he was almost certainly correct. That's great. Very cool. And one final question, why do you do this work?
0: Well, I think really that is the reason that to me, I come to this work from, you know, I've spent most of the last 15 years in government and I've, I've been really lucky to have a chance to work in all three branches of, of our federal government. So I sort of came to Article II and to the Justice Department last of the, of the three branches. And what I love about this work in this moment is that, you know, for, for us as a democracy, I, I have a lot of faith in the people themselves and in the value, uh, uh, the civic value and, and in the, the power of citizens themselves. And I think part of this effort with, with the guidelines is that has given us a portal to really hearing the stories of, of ordinary people across the country who see the wrong, see the injustice, and also believe in law, but specifically in our antitrust laws. Um, as a path to, you know, a more perfect union.
1: That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for being with us.
0: Thank you.
2: I thought it was really interesting, Nick, when she uh, declined to answer <laughs> the benevolent dictator question, because, is too you know, as, as maybe a uh, a deputy attorney general in the U.S. Justice Department. Um, <laughs> she might know that dictatorships are bad and not really Illegal. something the lawyer should be <laughs> even thinking about. Uh, but what was interesting was that she, about that, uh, in explaining her reservations, how she made this comparison between monopolies and dictatorships. Yeah. Uh, between market concentration and dictatorship, and that reminds me of one of my one of my favorite episodes. We did our conversation with the philosopher Elizabeth Anderson yeah. uh, about her book uh, *Private Government*, in right. which she refers to firms as uh, "quote the communist dictatorships in our midst." Right. And, Absolutely. And in a and that sounds you know, a a little uh, snarky, but when you actually go through her arguments, yes, what she's describing, the way a firm operates, it's a dictatorship. And Elon Musk is a dictator within his own companies, right? Clearly what's happening at Twitter, that that's not the result of some sort of inclusive democracy. That (laughs) is an insane dictator just imposing his will on uh what used to be a uh a useful uh public square. Yeah. So it gets back to this idea and and we mentioned this in uh in in the intro how undemocratic market concentration is right and how it it inevitably leads to unfreedom.
1: Yes, absolutely. And it, you know, but to be clear, you know, one of the good things about business is that every business is a tiny dictatorship and as a consequence it can make Decisions quickly and either live or die on the basis of those decisions.
2: Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. So says one of those dictators. Yeah, exactly.
1: Yeah, it's great to be it's great to be dictator.
2: Uh, yeah, it's uh, great. It's good to be the king. Yeah, yeah. it's good to be yeah, the we, king. We know that yeah. that lot Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. But there's economic consequences as well. Yeah, and I think obviously that's what we focus on on this podcast. And the idea that we finally, you know, the Republicans get credit from voters. Voters overwhelmingly think that they're the uh, they're the party that they they trust on business. It's crazy when you look at the empirical evidence. It's understandable when you look at the way Democrats have uh, historically failed on narrative. Yeah, uh, but we have a democratic president who's actually focusing on competition and not just giving it lip service and that is really really important not just to having a vibrant market economy but to having a large robust and inclusive middle class
1: yeah and a democracy that functions and it, and and you know this promoting competition thing could not be more middle out an economy that is structured in a way to maximize the number of robust participants is effectively the central idea of middle-out economics. And it extends both, uh, it extends in all domains and and most particularly into markets and how we structure them. So it's super cool and exciting to talk to Maggie. And again, this is like among the more wonkier things that's going on in political economy in the country today. It's hard for people to see and understand, but I just think we should talk about it all the time because it matters so much.